2: The faces are different, but the gestures are the same. A palm clasped over the mouth, fingers dragged through hair, the back of a hand wiping a runny nose. The images of Hillary Clinton supporters at what was supposed to be her victory party in 2016 are a study in shock. Polls had given Clinton a 70% chance of victory, some even more. The result made pollsters look foolish, pundits began to speculate that Trump-era politics defied prediction. But in 2018, academics at the University of Southampton and the University of Texas tested the accuracy of opinion polling around the world since the Second World War. It's been remarkably consistent. Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote, after all. With 143 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how useful are the polls? This week, The Economist launches its first-ever statistical forecast of the US presidential election. In this episode, we'll speak to The Economist's data team to find out how to build an election predictor, how confident they can be that it'll work, and who's currently predicted to win the White House in November. We'll also hear the story of George Gallup, the pioneer of political polling, and speak to a former pollster for Barack Obama about how to use polls when public opinion appears to be so volatile. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, The Washington Correspondent. How are you both doing?
3: Doing well, John. Thank you. In New York, protests continue mainly peacefully. I have a someone I went to high school with who was arrested, though, while protesting perfectly peacefully and attacked uh, by a police officer on Saturday night. So it was just a reminder of how violence continues often out of the public eye and how important it is for these protests to continue.
2: I'm sorry to hear that. I was going to say that in general, it seems to have been a better week. As you say, the protests have been overwhelmingly peaceful. John Fasman, it's not that often in journalism that you call for a thing to happen. And then a week later, it more or less does. But last week, You were on the podcast talking about police reforms, and some of them have happened already. I'm not suggesting there's a causal connection there, though maybe there is, such as the persuasiveness of your argument. But still, it's good to take a moment to to celebrate that, right? It's been really gratifying to
1: see how this conversation has moved substantively in the past week. You have mayors in New York and Los Angeles talking about redirecting parts of the police budget to mental health and other social services. Uh, You have New York finally repealing that law that shielded its police's disciplinary records from public view in Washington. The city council barred its police from hiring people with disciplinary problems elsewhere. Um, And so I'm really gratified to see that the protests seem to have led to
2: some substantive changes that I hope will continue. Okay. Well, let's get into it. This is a podcast about. The 2020 elections. And we're squarely on the election this week and the horse race because we are unveiling this week in print and all over the internet, The Economist's first ever presidential election model. Just to take you guys back to 2016, how surprised were you when the result came through?
3: I remember so distinctly that night. I think everyone does. There was a moment, I think it was Virginia, early, er, relatively early in the night, which was the first inkling that you had or that I had at least, where I realized that this might not go the way that I expected. And there was just this very visceral moment of surprise that deepened as the night wore on.
1: So from 2014 to 2017, I covered Southeast Asia from Singapore. But for the first two weeks of November 2016, I had called back to London. And I arrived the day before the election. So I volunteered to do the graveyard shift on election night, and walked into our big data room at about 4am London time, expecting to see the glass shards drop from the ceiling at Hillary Clinton's victory party, the fake glass shards, and was confronted by something very different. I was quite surprised. I
2: was watching at the US Embassy in London. And the big moment for me was when Florida came through for Donald Trump. Um, That was when I think it was pretty clear that there'd been a polling miss, and the forecasters had got things wrong. Well, let's see if we can do better this time. As Political journalists, we are always being asked who's going to win the election. And of course, any barroom pundit can point to a poll in Wisconsin or some obscure economic statistic for the answer. But thankfully, there is, I think, a more rigorous way to answer that question. The Economist data team has been working on a statistical model to forecast the election result. Elliot Morris is the man behind it.
0: In 2016, I was still in school, I I guess I was a second year student uh, at the University of Texas, and I had built my own forecasting model for the election just to acquaint myself with election statistics, with computer programming. But my model fared about as well as everyone else's, it predicted a 15% chance that Trump would win. It was a sort of dismal year for our forecasting.
2: What went wrong in forecasting generally and in your own forecast in in 2016?
0: Well, I think forecasters suffered from about the same two or three issues. The first was that most polls in the Midwest underestimated support for Donald Trump by three or four percentage points, some even higher than that. And that's because they didn't survey enough non-college educated white voters the voters that swung the hardest from Obama to Trump. Compounding this error was some modelers' handling of the uncertainty in the election. They assumed that most errors wouldn't be any larger than three percentage points or so, when in reality those errors were much higher.
2: So you haven't been put off by that misfire in 2016, and you've spent the past few months building a model for The Economist, the first time The Economist has built a model to forecast the outcome of the presidential election. How have you built this model? You know, what's under the hood? And how does it take account of those errors that were made in 2016?
0: Yeah, our model is still based on the polls, but we treat them as the more historically imperfect measures of public opinion that we think they truly are. Early in the election cycle, it will put more weight on things like the economy, the president's approval rating, and as time goes on, it will put more weight on polls as we think they become more accurate measures of public opinion later in the cycle. To fix these issues that we saw in 2016, we have a bit more error in our distribution, more uncertainty than other modelers will. And we have some fancy waiting corrections for this tendency for some pollsters to underestimate support for Republican
2: candidates. So in 2016, if you had a model that was fundamentals only, i.e. that looked at the state of the economy and that looked at who was in the White House and noticed that you know the same party had held the White House for two consecutive terms, which normally presages a change in American politics, your model would have done a lot better than a model that was polls only. Our model, as you say, is polls base. But this early in the cycle, it really is much more about what the fundamentals say than about what the polls say. And and the polls will come to have more weight in the model later in the year when polling seems to be more accurate. Tell me about the difficulties of measuring fundamentals at the moment, because the American economy is kind of seesawing all over the place because of COVID-19. How do you make the model work when that key variable is so unstable?
0: Yeah, we have a few tricks up our sleeves. The first is that we rely on a broad range of economic indicators. Instead of just taking, say, the GDP growth in the second quarter, we rely on a series of nine different economic indicators from manufacturing and trade production to unemployment rate and the S&P, and they get averaged together so that A big spike in job creation or job losses, as we've seen over the past three months, won't exert too much influence over the forecast unless it is matched by movement in other sectors of the economy. We also treat our measure of the economy as nonlinear. That is to say that if a recession looks four or five times as bad as the Great Recession, as indeed the coronavirus-induced recession looked for uh, about a month, our model will decrease it's estimate of how bad the economy actually is and and that's because we don't really know what happens to voter behavior when we go from 15 to 20% unemployment rate that could sway more voters or people could just see that the economy is already bad enough and it wouldn't change additional minds
2: elliot the model looks at past presidential elections and you know kind of combs through the history there to find patterns that seem to hold true? There are some people who would say that, you know, not only is the economy swinging around all over the place, but the Trump presidency in some way is sort of unprecedented. And in many ways, it's tempting to think that you can't therefore kind of squeeze him into a model that's based on historical trends. What do you say to, to that objection that some people might, might raise?
0: Well, I, I would pour some cold water on that objection. A model based on the fundamentals would have predicted Donald Trump to be the victor of the 2016 presidential election in February. If you just rely on economics and the incumbent party's approval rating, we would have predicted Donald Trump better than any of the poll-based forecasters. Now, obviously, we think polls have gotten better over the last four years, so, so we're using them, but it seems like models do do a good job at picking up support for him.
2: Finally, Elliot, how would you like us and Economist readers to to use your model and where can they find it?
0: We have created a model that pays a lot of attention to uncertainty. It won't jump around a lot like the other polling averages and models will. We would like our readers to read the forecast with the same attention to the uncertainty of the data. A single poll in Kentucky, for example, shouldn't change our expectation of the race entirely. We have other information about the presidential election than just the polling, and we want our model to say that, and we we want the readers to see that you can go online to economist.com slash US2020model.
2: I love that Elliot was building an election forecast model while he was still in college in his spare time. If you're the sort of person who enjoys discussions of how forecasting works and really want to get under the hood of this model, you can go to economist.com and read a long piece that Elliot's written about the model in this week's issue. There's an even longer medium post on the methodology if you enjoy discussions of machine learning and of the Markov chain Monte Carlo method of statistics. But for most podcast listeners, I think we'll be interested to know what the model says. John Fasman, what's it predicting at the moment? At the moment, it gives Joe Biden about an 82%
1: chance of winning the Electoral College and a 96% chance of winning the most votes. It puts his range of Electoral College votes from 223, which of course is not enough to win, up to 412, which is landslide territory and
2: not terribly likely. I guess one of the reasons we build models is that the computers are not emotional in the way we are. And you know, if we just wanted a gut check, we wouldn't have to build a fancy model. But how does that probability estimate match up with your own feelings about this election in November at the moment? I mean, it seems to match up pretty well, right?
1: I think at the moment, Joe Biden is the likelier winner. But again, I don't know if that is, if you're talking about a gut check, you know, you and I consume polls and political news all the time. So my gut is pretty well conditioned at this point to sort of build into my thinking a 10% lead in national polls, which translates into a probable victory in the Electoral College and a more certain one in the popular vote but with a lot of attention paid to the possibility that you could have a split there. So it seems to mirror it, but
2: I don't know if that's, uh, to the extent it's a gut check, it sort of reflects what I've been putting in my gut. We've had some discussions about this because I know you're particularly keen on fermenting cabbage. And so I know exactly what you've been putting in your gut. Charlotte, what does your gut feel about this model?
3: I find the model to be fascinating and the outcome, I mean, it just seems like it's a lot of time between now and November, and there are a lot of things that can happen. So I'm holding my breath a bit. I do, though, want to just pause for a moment. The Economist is a publication in which our articles have no bylines. So historically, you've never known who's writing what. And I think there's a stereotype for what an economist journalist is. And Elliot, just to pause on him for a moment, he was 10 when Barack Obama was first elected, which is just... Staggering. But he's not a boy who we picked up off the street. If you want to know more about him, there's a Vox story titled How a 21-year-old college senior became the breakout star of 2018 election forecasting. And he became sort of famous in 2018 for predicting the Democrats would do well in the midterms and is a real kind of data wunderkind unto himself.
2: Yeah, we're very lucky to have him. And he's basically spent the past three months writing code for this model. So it better work. John, I found that in 2016, I I did cover the election in 2016, and polls and models can really shape how an editor selects and commissions stories and how a reporter writes them, right? Because to give people a sense of how we work, when you're doing political journalism, you go out with your notebook and you talk to a whole load of voters, But even on a good day, you're probably not going to talk to more than 10, 15, maybe 20 if you're lucky voters. And that sample size is tiny compared with the sample sizes that pollsters put together, you know, a thousand people or more. So, So what you do is you check what's in your notes against what the polls are saying. And that's really just kind of good reporting method. Now, if I think back to our last issue before the 2016 election in The Economist, we had a couple of articles in there. One said that Donald Trump was really popular among non-college white voters in the Midwest. And they thought that he'd really be able to kind of restore uh, the American dream and sort of opportunity for them. And we had another article saying that Hillary Clinton was surprisingly unpopular among African Americans and that was reported from the south. Now, if you had taken those two articles and you didn't know anything about the polls, I think you would have predicted that Trump was going to win. But of course, you know, we looked at the polls and they suggested a Hillary Clinton victory. So I think the the impression we gave in our coverage overall in those last few issues was that Hillary Clinton was was the overwhelming favorite. So this time around, you're going to be out reporting on this election. How are you going to be balancing what's in the polls and what the model's saying versus what's in your notebook? I'm glad
1: you brought that up. I think one important lesson is to make sure you talk to as many people as possible. I think that uh, over the course of Barack Obama's presidency and the rise of data journalism, there was a bit of an over-reliance on polls and numbers and data. Whereas... As you say, if you go out and talk to people, you may find something different. I remember, as I said, in 2016, I was in Asia, so I was sort of covering things from afar. But I remember having a discussion with David Rennie, who was writing a Lexington column at the time, and he mentioned that when he would go out and when he was covering the election, Donald Trump's rallies were enormous and well-attended and raucous, and there were long lines to get in, and the excitement was palpable. Hillary Clinton's felt small, stayed, underattended, and overproduced. Again, that's an impression, but it turned out to be a really sort of telling, prescient one, and that testifies both to Rennie's ability as a reporter and his eye for detail, but also to the importance of trusting what you see and not just
2: relying on what the numbers tell you you should be seeing. Well, I'll certainly be paying a lot of attention to what the models saying in my reporting, but also listening to my gut. I've developed a personal gut check while out reporting. and My rule of reporting is that any candidate that I really like is almost guaranteed to lose an election. (laughs) I generally follow that too.
1: I remember being a big Paul Sangas fan in 1992 and my instinct for choosing the sort
2: of well-intentioned dweeb has never failed me. (laughs) All right, thank you both. In a moment, we'll find out who invented modern polling. But first, a reminder that if you're not a subscriber yet, you really should be, To sign up at a special rate, head to economist.com slash electionpod. There's lots more great work by Elliot and the rest of the data team to peruse, plus a thought-provoking briefing this week on a subject close to Charlotte's heart, the future of New York City. That link again, economist.com slash 2020 electionpod. You can find it in the show notes for this episode. If there's a granddaddy of election data, it's George Gallup. Born in 1901 in Jefferson, Iowa, his small-town origins may have been what convinced him that a small cross-section of Americans could represent the views of the entire country. He began testing public opinion while still at college. His dissertation revealed that Iowa newspaper readers preferred the comics and photos to the bits of the paper journalists cared about. The Des Moines Register soon carried more pictures than any other paper in the country. You are looking at Dove, the amazing new beauty discovery. See, Gallup's knack for measuring opinion caught the attention of big brands. Dove is completely new, revolutionary, much better for your skin. Eva Brothers hired him to study the impact of soap commercials. Dove creams your skin while you wash. He moved from the Midwest to Madison Avenue just as mass culture took hold of America. Radio, telephones, the movies were homogenizing national tastes. Realizing that American consumers all wanted more or less the same thing, corporate America would pay a fortune to know what that was. Gallup became convinced that what worked for soap applied to politics too. He wasn't the first political pollster, but his method of sampling a representative slice of Americans made him the best. By 1936, he was convinced that existing election polling was way off. The Literary Digest had been testing political opinion by going through registers of phone and car owners, completely missing the poorer voters who backed President Roosevelt's New Deal. I hope that in the next four years, The worst
4: part of the emergency being over, I'll be able to spend a little more time in Hyde Park.
2: Gallup made a public prediction that the Digest would pick Roosevelt's Republican opponent, Alf Landon, as the winner, and that they'd be wrong. In the event, even Gallup underestimated the margin of Roosevelt's victory by 7%. I want to thank the many thousands who have telegraphed and written to me since the election.
3: To all of you, I say... We can now march forward, all of us together.
2: Gallup's model, seeking opinions from a carefully calibrated mix of Republicans and Democrats, rich and poor, professional and blue-collar Americans, proved powerful enough to survive the most notorious cock-up in election modelling in 1948. By then, the Gallup organization, now called the American Institute of Public Opinion, was influencing everything from movie titles to book club choices. In the election, it picked Republican challenger Tom Dewey to beat President Harry Truman by a clear margin.
1: We have uh, obtained the results from the state of Ohio,
4: which assures victory for President Truman and Senator Barclay.
2: The prediction held all the way through election night, the Chicago Daily Tribune famously carrying it in its morning edition the erroneous headline, Dewey Beats Truman. For
3: the next four years, there'll be a Democrat in the White House and you're looking at it.
2: George Gallup became a political institution.
3: Well,
4: <clears throat> I'm happy to say we've had a good record since 1948 in particular, when we missed the boat. In
2: 1969, with American cities still reeling from a wave of protests, he had the data on Richard Nixon's silent majority.
4: A further question found that by the ratio of six to one, the public thinks that uh, moratoriums and demonstrations do more harm than good in terms of uh, the attainment of peace.
2: He was the first to compile presidential popularity ratings and to pose the basic questions. What questions were asked? Who would you vote for if the elections were being held today? What is the
4: most important problem facing the country? It's all done objectively, following mathematical principles.
2: Gallup's genius for plumbing the public mind had its sinister side, too. Critics of mass culture felt consumer surveys were foisting a dull conformism on the country. By 1975, a Gallup survey reported one in seven Americans reported having taken part in a survey. In 2020, data mongers are blamed for precisely the opposite, for destroying the common culture that once bound America together. Micro targeted political messaging has toxified the public sphere, the argument goes, as crude algorithms bundle voters by the traces they leave online. But Gallup kept his faith in data. He took to spending summers in Switzerland, where he died in 1984. He liked its romantic scenery but also its frequent referendums. Switzerland was, he enthused, a country virtually run by the polls. Charlotte, everybody covering American politics wants to avoid having one of those Truman-Dewey moments that George Gallup had. One of the biggest uncertainties... In all of this, is the state of the economy. How do you think about how the economy will affect this election?
3: It's funny because it's a rule of thumb that it's the economy stupid, right? So, since 1980, in each election where unemployment was rising, the incumbent lost. Um, So, that would suggest a relatively simple relationship, but it's actually a bit more complex than that. And that's in part because high unemployment can lead to lower voter turnout. There was a Princeton paper that found that a high unemployment rate can lead to a 10%, um, at least a 10% loss in voter turnout. And also there's evidence that a high unemployment rate increases vote shares of Democratic candidates. That's most obvious when a Republican is the incumbent, but Democrats also seem to benefit from unemployment even when they are in control, and that it's seen as a partisan issue with Democrats more able to provide help.
1: I would also say regarding this election in particular, that the high unemployment numbers are sort of different in kind from what they often are when unemployment goes up. What we are living through now is a massive exogenous demand shock, a shutdown in demand. And so I wonder if people will process unemployment the same way this year because people are staying home and things were shut down for a long time as they would in an ordinary period of high unemployment.
3: Yeah. And this year, it's particularly tricky because the stock market has been doing pretty well, even though unemployment has been incredibly high. That would be a weird situation for any president, but it's a particularly weird situation for Trump because he, unlike most presidents, has always pointed to the stock market as a symbol of his own success. Prior presidents didn't want to tether themselves too closely to what was happening on Wall Street. But Trump has always liked to point to the stock market as evidence that he's a president who's doing a good job. And recently, you have seen Trump increasingly intent on boosting the employment rate. He this week asked Congress for extra stimulus. In May, of course the House of Representatives had passed a 3.5 trillion stimulus bill that Republicans declined to sign. Trump is pushing a payroll tax cut, maybe a return to work cash incentive. But he's clearly very focused on this. And it's just a really strange year to have all these different machinations at work.
2: I asked Elliot about the effect of the stock market on past economies. And he says there's very little correlation between what the stock market's up to and how the president is doing. O- other measures like personal income and unemployment much more strongly correlated with presidential fortunes.
1: Yeah, economic data also is not processed in a wholly objective way, right? Elliot figures that the impact of the economy on an election is about half of what it was 50 years ago, just because people interpret it in their own way. That suggests that what will matter most in November is isn't the sort of raw economic data itself or how you and I and our colleagues interpret the economy it's how Trump and Biden frame it and what the contrasting story is
2: yes john to your point about how differently people process economic data now what are my favorite bits of polling from the 2016 cycle related to Americans perceptions of their personal income if you asked Republicans about their personal financial situation the week before the 2016 presidential election They were pretty pessimistic. If you asked them in the week after the presidential election, when Donald Trump had won, they suddenly reported that their personal financial situation was much better than it had been only a week or two ago. The only explanation for that really is that people process economic data through a strong partisan lens. And that's why It's the Economy is Stupid isn't quite as true as it once was. We're going to hear from a pollster who worked with Barack Obama about swings in voter opinions on race, in just a moment.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
2: Since the death of George Floyd on Memorial Day, America has been convulsed by soul-searching on the subject of race. There's also evidence of some striking shifts in public opinion. To get a clearer sense of what's going on, I spoke to Cornell Belcher. He's a pollster who worked with the Democratic National Committee to increase voter participation in the early 2000s.
4: My polling was really the blueprint for the 50-state strategy this idea that we're going to build a movement, we're going to expand the electorate, we're going to make the electorate look more like the face of America.
2: It was a strategy that first paid off for the Democrats in the 2006 midterms and paved the way for Barack Obama's victory in 2008.
4: That was the pillar of the Obama movement, I think, from the very beginning. And I think that it is critical to understanding the changes in American politics then and the changes that are happening now. Because understand... Most people looked at what Barack Obama did as some sort of racial breakthrough, right? And I remember headlines talking about how America was post-racial. I was in Paris when I found out America was post-racial because I was on vacation. Parisians were coming up to you know, congratulate Americans for becoming, c- c- overcoming your racism. Well, of course, we know that <laughs> that wasn't true. But what Obama did represent was a breakthrough in demographics. Barack Obama won a majority in this country in 2008 by garnering 43% of the white vote. John Kerry won 43% of the white vote the previous presidential election and lost to George Bush. So our ability to expand the electorate and bring in more diverse voices into the electorate was key and foundational to the successful movement of, of the Obama campaign.
2: And when we're talking about race and politics in America, it often seems like racial attitudes change quite slowly. And and that can lead to a certain sort of, you know, pessimism and and weariness about the possibility of change. What's your reading of what's happened since the killing of George Floyd? Because it looks like there's been quite a dramatic shift in polling on awareness of racism in America.
4: I'm gobsmacked. I I mean, I am. Um, Look, go back to 2008. And, and you look at some of our research in in the battleground states, and you had white voters in the battleground states who thought reverse discrimination was a larger issue than classic racial discrimination. Part of the issue for why we've been unable to really wrestle with racism and discrimination in modern America is because you've had a rather significant swath of white Americans who didn't think racism was a big deal. What's amazing now in the polling is that you have rather large and significant majorities of Americans now thinking racism is a big problem. And you have even bare majorities of Republicans now thinking that, that the police treat black and minorities differently than they do whites. That's a dramatic sea change that I think this event has encapsulated for Americans. It's a minority issue, but more so than it has ever been, it is an American issue.
2: And you, in your work now as a political consultant, advise candidates on what's going on in the polls. Do you see a connection already between that change you've described in attitudes towards racism and voting intention? Or do those two sort of things live in separate
4: spheres? I think it's too early to tell. I will say this. I think if you look at 2018 and you look at Democrats' ability to win college white voters, uh, specifically run up the score with college white women, In a way that Democrats have not been able to do in a very long time. That wasn't because of the economy, stupid. You know, when you look at the way white women, particularly college educated white women, were rejecting uh, what they're seeing coming out of Washington, what they're seeing coming out of Trump, they were rejecting the sexism, they are rejecting the division and, and you talk to, you know, suburban white women in focus groups, which which we did going into 2018, yes, they were concerned about health care. Yes, they were concerned about pocketbook issues. But so much of their conversation was around how incredibly divided the country is becoming and how potentially problematic that is for their children and the future of the country. Now, this is a bold statement, so you have to be careful. But if college white voters continue to behave the way they behaved in 2018. And if you look at the the polling right now, Biden is up, depending on the poll, 20 points among college white voters. And understand, Hillary, in the exit polling, Hillary didn't win college white voters. And Obama, as magical as we think Obama was, he he didn't win college white voters either. If this trend line continues, that's arguably the coming of a next political realignment the likes of which we saw in six, what, 64, 65 when LBJ signed the civil rights legislation and, and said there goes the South for a generation. What LBJ really could have said is there goes a the white vote for the next several generations. We are potentially on the cusp of seeing race matters in this country create yet another political realignment if this holds.
2: John Fassman, let's start with you. Cornell was just talking there about the 2018 midterm results, which were very good for Democrats. They turned out this notably multiracial coalition did very well in suburban America. But I've been reading books since the mid-2000s about how this emerging Democratic majority would deliver the Democratic Party national election after national election. And it's more complicated than that, isn't it? It is. The promise of a
1: demographically driven victory, I think, plays into Democrats' long-held idea that they have policies that are so self-evidently better for so many more people that persuasion is sort of persuasion is not where the game is at. All they need to do is turn out enough sensible people, and the rightness of their policies will overwhelm the electorate. I think that it's not quite that simple, and I found that discussion fascinating. He talked about expanding the electorate with regard to the 2008 Democratic primary. Expanding the electorate in a democracy is essential. And in a healthy democracy, you'd have both parties trying to get as many people, not just to vote for them, but to vote as possible. That's what a healthy democracy would look like. For whatever reason, that's not what we have now. We now have one party that wants to get as many people voting as possible, and the other that seems to want to prevent people from voting. But I also think if you look at the 2018 election, Andrew Gillum in Florida and Stacey Abrams in Georgia both ran gubernatorial campaigns centered around expanding the electorate. And they both did expand the electorate. They both got more votes, I believe, in their states than any gubernatorial candidate had in the past, except for the candidates who beat them. So you know, setting aside sort of what Brian Kemp may or may not have done as Secretary of State in Georgia to suppress the vote... I think in both cases, you saw that a strategy centered around expanding the electorate also risks prompting a huge wave of negative partisanship. Um, And so I think that if Democrats are going to put expanding the electorate at the center of their political strategy, as they should, they also have to take account of the risk that they could be provoking an enormous amount of backlash votes as well.
3: That's a really interesting point. And one thing I wonder about when looking at the polling over the past week that showed a really big surge in support for, for Black Lives Matter is that there seems to have been, in the 2016 polling, the social desirability bias that voters give polling people the answers that they think they want to hear. And so I think that there has been And there seems to be a really promising groundswell of support for Black Lives Matter and substantive change. But it's worth taking those findings with a bit of a grain of salt. Um, It would be a really big deal to get a surge in, in black turnout for Joe Biden, because for Hillary Clinton, that was one of the big weaknesses of her campaign, that even though she won an overwhelming majority of black support, black turnout was at a 20 year low. And so it's really critical that Joe Biden not repeat that. If he can find a way to harness this momentum through November, that would be incredibly powerful.
1: I think that's part of what's behind Democrats' hopes that he chooses an African American woman as a running mate. I think Democrats understand that getting African American turnout as high as possible is really crucial to their victory. And I think there's also an understanding at least, and there's an explicit acknowledgement that African Americans, especially African American women, are the most consistent voting bloc in the Democratic Party. And so they deserve much more of a say than they've gotten in the past.
2: Well, thank you both. Of course, likely African American turnout is one of the many, many variables that this model that Elliot's built will be looking at. And just in case anybody listening thinks that a one in five chance of a Trump victory now seems crazy and the model's way out. If you went back until earlier in the year before COVID-19 struck, Elliot's back-tested the model and at that point it had Donald Trump as favoured to win the election. So there's been quite a big change recently and I would expect as we go towards election day the model to move a bit more in Donald Trump's favour. So we'll bring you regular updates and let's see. Before you guys go, I have a quiz for you. In October of a big election year, The Economist quoted George Gallup himself, saying it was too close to call. American voters will make their choice undeterred or unfortified by any authoritative forecast of the outcome, the paper wrote. It was the closest election result in US history. What was the year? Was it, uh, was it 64? Yeah, was it, I would guess 1964.
3: Um, I know this is wrong, but I'll just go with 48 for the Dewey-Truman contest.
2: It was 1960. Ah, it wasn't 64. Kennedy beat Nixon by a margin of 0.2% of the popular vote. That's right, of course.
1: 64 was Johnson Goldwater, not Kennedy. I just, I got the, that's right. Sorry.
3: (laughs) You sound so ashamed, John Fasman. Like really ashamed. I am ashamed. I I,
1: I, (laughs) I should have known that. Kennedy barely edged out Nixon.
2: I just got the year wrong. For listeners who don't have the benefit of seeing John Fasman on video conference while we record this, he is hanging his head in shame (laughs) as we talk. (laughs) Bush v. Gore in 2000 was the next closest, 0.5% margin for Gore. JFK's victory was attributed in part to him rallying the African-American vote, by no means given at the start of that campaign. What gesture was credited with Kennedy winning over African-Americans?
1: Did he meet Dr. King? I know he invited the big six to the White House when he was president, and that was, that, that was unusual. But did he meet Dr. King before his election?
3: That sounds right.
2: That's close, but because I'm sleep-deprived and feeling mean, I'm not going to give you a point, John Fassman. He called the governor of Georgia to get Martin Luther King released from jail. Dr. King actually knew Nixon better than he knew Kennedy at the time, and would later say that Nixon was a, quote, moral coward for ignoring him in his hour of need. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. That's all from us. If you like the podcast, please leave a star-spangled rating and a review on your podcast app. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.